come from the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, Titus 2 verses 7 through 8, Titus chapter 2 verses 7 through 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Coming up in two weeks from yesterday, so this will be November 11th, we are going to be hosting a digital parenting seminar. You may have heard about this or seen some advertisements um, out in the foyer. The digital parenting seminar is for people who are interested in learning more about uh, how, to, um, how to think through as a Christian the, the way our kids interact with media of all kinds, uh, especially things like cell phones and iPads and uh, screens of all kinds in their lives. And that's a problem, it's a challenge for every parent. And this, this particular um, seminar, it's gonna be on that Saturday morning, November 11th from 9 a.m. to noon. And then Chad Landman, who's coming from Tennessee to deliver this seminar to us, will be preaching to us as well on that following Sunday morning. Uh, but put that on your calendar. Uh, it's not for young people per se. Uh, it's okay if they want to come, if, if you want to bring your, your teenager, but it's not really a seminar for them. It's rather a seminar for those of us who are parents and we're trying to think, or even grandparents, and trying to think in godly ways about how we can help our young people navigate uh, through a lot of information that they have access to, uh, a lot of the uh, interactions that they have, um, you know, through text messages and things like that. Uh, Chad Lamon's going to deliver a seminar on those things. So be praying about that, be planning for it. If you have any questions, uh, ask me, ask one of the elders. We'll be happy to, happy to answer you and uh, point you in the right direction. Also, I see some of you are sitting in different places than your usual places tonight. Way to go. Uh, look across the room, look around the room and see somebody that maybe you don't know all that well. And please do just reach out. It's always good and the church is at its best when we are, when we are interacting with each other. So let's do more of that. Thank you so much for participating in our name amnesty. Um, I guess that's what we're going to call it uh, program again. Open your Bibles if you don't already have them open to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this evening. Titus 2 verses 1 through 10. The book of Titus is all about living up to your faith. It's all about living as a faithful Christian. Titus chapter 1 deals with living up to your faith in the church. Titus 2 deals with living up to your faith in the home. And then Titus 3 deals with living up to your faith in the community or in the world. And when you look at the book of Titus, I want you to notice that the heart of Titus really is the passage that we're about to study this evening, Titus 2 verses 1 through 10. It talks about every different people group or a lot of the different people groups in the local churches there on the island of Crete where Titus was. And he was supposed to go to these congregations and he was supposed to give healthy teaching to every group. You know, there are a lot of things that we do together here at the building. There are a lot of things we do together as a church family in the community. However, real Christianity, and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, real Christianity is lived out in our homes 
behind the four walls where we are interacting with the people that God has blessed us with and our families. How do you interact with the people in your home? And when it comes to the way we relate to each other in the home, is Jesus seen in those relationships? That's the question that really needs to be asked and needs to be answered from Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. As you look at this passage, I want you to notice in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, but as for you, Titus, I want you to speak the things which are fitting, which are appropriate for sound doctrine, healthy teaching. There's that phrase again, all over the book of Titus, soundness, health, and you need to teach people things that are healthy. And then he begins in verse two and talks about the older men, then the older women, then the younger women, then the younger men. And then finally he concludes in verses nine and 10 with the servants or the slaves. They would have made up a household, part of a household as well in that time, in that culture. We'll talk about all those in turn. But as a preliminary, let's just notice five important principles. Five important principles that just come from these 10 verses. Some things that we as Christians ought to think about. Number one, there is a need in every congregation for positive teaching. Titus chapter one, verses 10 through 16 is, you might say negative. There are people who are speaking false things and their mouths need to be stopped. They are subverting whole households. But then there is Titus two, verses one through 10. The church needs to hear positive teaching as well. We need to be warned about errors, about false teachers, but we also need to be reminded what our responsibilities are and our challenges are as New Testament Christians. Second principle, there is a need for doctrine to be applied to our lives. Doctrine and application of that doctrine. Paul is writing about sound doctrine all through the book of Titus. And I want you to notice the way Titus 2 breaks down. Titus 2, 1 through 10 is the application. And then Titus 2, verses 11 through 15 is, if you want to say it this way, the doctrine. The grace of God, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that brings salvation has appeared to all of us and it teaches us things. What kinds of things does it teach us? What we're about to read in verses 1 through 10. And so the fact that Jesus has died for us and the fact that he suffered in our place and the fact that we can be united with him in baptism, all those doctrines, all those teachings, they lead to application for our lives. And the church needs to hear more about what God expects and what God desires of how we live. Third important principle, in the church, different groups need different instructions. Different groups need different instructions. Younger people, older people, males, females, people in different occupations like slaves in the first century, everybody needs instruction about how to live their life, how to manage and navigate their lives in a way that pleases Jesus. And it looks a little bit different for some of us than for others. A wife and a mother in the home is going to have a set of responsibilities and obligations that are different in some ways from a husband and a father in the home. We all are serving and trying to please Jesus, but different groups need different instructions, and the church should not lose sight of that. Implication or principle number five, there is in this passage an emphasis on intergenerational relationships. We're going to get to that in verses 4 and 5, where the older women are commanded to teach the younger. They're commanded to get involved in their lives and to visit with them about things relating to the gospel and how it applies to their lives. The church does well when we emphasize intergenerational relationships. When I think about my life, 
I am reminded that most of the people that really had a, have had a deep impact in my life have been people from a different generation than me. Used to be when I was younger, it was all older people. And now I'm starting to figure out that there are people that are impacting my life that are a lot younger than I am. And I'm thankful for that. But there's a need for that in the church. We shouldn't just silo everybody into age groups where, you know, you go together because you're of the same age and you go together because you're the same age. There's a place for that. Don't misunderstand. But there's also something very beneficial about crossing over generations intentionally in the church. This passage tells us that. And then finally, five important principles. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are an advertisement. They are an advertisement in the community, in the people that we interact with on a daily basis for Jesus Christ and his gospel. I want you to look at three passages in Titus chapter two. I want you to look at verse six. Why should people behave themselves this way? So that the word of God should not be reviled. Again, in verse eight, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And finally, in verse 10, the way slaves conduct themselves is supposed to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They're supposed to conduct themselves in such a way that the gospel looks attractive. The word for adorn is cosmeo, cosmetics, we get our word from that. And the idea is people ought to be able to look at our lives and they ought to see something about what Jesus does in a person's life. And it's an advertisement. It's something that calls us and calls people to Christ. You may well be the only Bible some people ever read. And does your life adorn the doctrine of Christ? That's the question. This passage brings that to our attention. With all that in mind, I want you to look at five different groups that Paul addresses in Titus chapter two, beginning in verse two. The first one is the older men. Every group needs teaching. Every group needs instruction. And Titus, I don't want you to overlook anybody. So when you go to these congregations, I want you to teach the older men, teach them positively. What are they supposed to do in order to please the Lord, in order to be a blessing to the people around them? In the first place, as you look at Titus chapter two, verse two, the Bible says that older men are to be sober-minded. It also says they are to be dignified and it says that they are to be self-controlled. Incidentally, self-control is a recurring theme in this chapter. It's probably not a bad thing that we preached about self-control, the fruit of the spirit this morning in our study. But self-control, look at how frequently it's brought up in this passage. It's there again in verse four and again in verse five and slaves and young men are to be self-controlled. And even down when you get to verses 11 and 12 of Titus chapter two, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and self-controlled godly in this present age. The idea of self-control is something that is throughout this passage. And when you take those three words together, what they basically mean for older men, be a man of dignity. Be a man who is serious and grave about serious and grave things. Be level-headed. Be serious about matters that are serious, dignified, reverent. We're not being irreverent. We're not mocking the things of God. We're not mocking things that are holy and righteous. We are self-controlled. We're balanced and thoughtful. And you know, sometimes life gets kind of chaotic. And oftentimes, because of the way society is structured, even in Crete, oftentimes people look to older men. What should we do? How should we handle the problems that face us, the challenges that face us? An older man, if you want to think about it this way, he ought to conduct himself like a medic on the battlefield. 
under, under heavy fire, dealing with problems and treating issues and dealing with all kinds of questions in a way that pleases God. Not just turning into jello and not losing his mind, but rather, rather being the kind of man that God wants him to be. An influence for good among the people of God. And then notice as well this verse in verse 2, it talks about not just dignity, not just uh, that, that kind of aspect of an older man's life, but it also talks about maturity. He is to be sound, healthy. He is to be sound in his faith. He's to be sound in his love and he's to be found sound in his patience or steadfastness. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul says, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. Remember? The grace of these is love. It's amazing when you study your New Testament how frequently that triad shows up. And it's here in this verse. Faith, hope, and steadfastness, patience, or love, if you want to call it that. And so the older men are to be men of maturity. They're, they're sound in their faith. They know what they believe. They know what the Bible says, and they're not going to let anybody just sway them from what they know to be true in God's Word. They're to be sound in their love. That means that older men don't become so self-absorbed and self-focused that they forget that there are people that need them. And they care about people, and they show the love of Christ in their lives in the way that they deal with people. And they are to be patient, steadfast. As we age, as we get older it becomes more difficult sometimes to be patient in a lot of different areas of our lives, with our health, with our relationships, with our frustrations about what has and hasn't occurred in our lives. It gets difficult to be patient. But older men, the Bible says, be steadfast, be sound in your patience. And so the two words that you kind of take away from verse two here, dignity, maturity. That's what God desires in an older man. What kind of jokes do you like to tell? What kind of things do you think are funny? Those kinds of questions relate directly to this verse, older men. Secondly, as you continue in this passage, look at verse three. He turns his attention to older women. Titus, I want you to go to these congregations on the island of Crete. I want you to give instructions to the older men, dignified, mature. I want you to give instructions to the older women. And there are some interesting things said about older women in this verse. In the first place, they are to be reverent in behavior. There is a word here that is found only here in the New Testament. And the word means we are conducting ourselves as if we were ministering in the temple. Can you just imagine what that must have been like in the Old Testament to go into the temple and to minister, to, uh, to offer sacrifices and things like that, how, how awesome that experience must have been and how serious that must have been. And so the idea for women, older women here, is that she's taking seriously the fact that she belongs to God. This is something that matters to her and this is something that pervades every aspect of her life. In her behavior, she's reverent. She's restrained and she's thinking seriously about things that are serious. Then, Paul says, teach them, Titus, not to be slanderers, critics, fault finders. Teach them not to conduct themselves that way, where they're pointing out the flaws in other people all the time and they're speaking ill of other people all the time. 
Teach them not to do that. That's not the way Christians speak about others. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is necessary for edification, build them up. Don't tear them down. Don't be a slanderer. You know, sometimes I've discovered as I've started to grow older, sometimes we forget what it was like to be young. We forget some of the mistakes and the things that young people do. And we can become hypercritical of those things if we're not careful. Don't be a slanderer. Again, they are not slaves to much wine. This is interesting. Paul uses a word here for slavery. And he says that wine can enslave a woman. It seems that this must have been a big problem on the island of Crete because he doesn't say this about any of the other people groups. He doesn't say this about the older men necessarily, the younger women, the younger men. He doesn't bring this up. Maybe they had a problem with this too. But it seems that maybe the older women especially, that maybe this was a pastime. Don't be a slave to much wine. You know, when Titus came into the churches and there were women that were slaves to much wine and Titus began to preach and say, this is sound doctrine. This is healthy teaching from God himself. Stop being a slave to much wine. You know what some of those women probably said? I can control it. I can quit anytime I want. You know, other people say I have a problem, but they're wrong. Those are probably some of the responses that some of those women gave because people haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. And what God is saying is wine and intoxicating drink has an enslaving aspect to it and you won't even know, you won't even know when that begins to dominate your life, God says just stay away from it. Do not be slaves to much wine. Don't do this. Don't have this as part of your life. And don't be known for this in your life. You've got better things to do, older ladies. Watch what he goes on to say. You've got better things to do. What should we do, Paul? What does God want us to do? He says, I want you to teach what is good. You see that in your passage? Older ladies, teach what is good. And especially train the younger women. Let me just talk about what this must have looked like. Because when you look on in verse 5, They're going to be, in verses four and five, they're going to be training the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, among other things, to be discreet and chaste and pure and all these things. Listen, there are in our lives very few matters that are more sensitive, especially to younger women, than marriage and parenting. There are very few issues that are more sensitive than that. How do you think this is supposed to work? What's Paul saying for Titus to do? How do you think this is supposed to work? Older women, teach the younger women. There may be occasions where Bible classes and Bible studies are needed to be taught by older women. That may be the, there may be occasions for that. I don't think predominantly that's what Paul has in mind here. What I believe Paul has in mind here is this, that older women see opportunities in their lives where they can come alongside younger women and they can befriend them and they can be models to them and they can be mentors to them. That's rather what's going on here because how do you come up with a three-point outline to tell somebody how to love their husband or how to love their children? How do you do that? This is about living life and it's about giving godly, sound, wholesome advice and training those younger women And it's interesting too that Paul didn't say, Titus, I want you to train the younger women. That's not for Titus to do. Although he could preach this sermon, 
But Titus, I want you to tell the older women they've got a role, they've got a responsibility. Find somebody in your life that you can help and that you can encourage and help them to be the kind of young woman that God wants her to be. Older women are commanded to teach the younger. That just makes sense, doesn't it? It's sound, it's good advice. It's God's advice, it's God's commands to us. Next, he speaks to the younger women, verses four and five, and he has more to say about younger women than anybody else. Here's what he says, younger women, God wants you to love your husband. The Greek word, I'm gonna put this up, there's two Greek words here, philo andrus, philo means friendly, friendship, affectionate kind of love, and andrus is, is, is the word for husband. And then love your children, philotechnus, technos is the word for children. And love your husband, love your children. What's interesting to me about this is that God is saying that this is something that younger women need instruction in. It doesn't happen just by osmosis and it doesn't happen just by, you know, natural inclination. You don't just, you know, walk into this blindly and know how to love your husband and love your children in a way that pleases God. There's an affection that's being commanded here. There is a care and a concern for one's husband and children. Some commentators think that one of the reasons why Paul said this was because perhaps on the island of Crete, there were a lot of arranged marriages. You're married, now learn to love your husband. But isn't it interesting to think about, even today, a lot of us need instruction. What does it look like to be a loving husband, a loving wife? What does it look like to be a loving parent? How do I love my family in a way that pleases God. We need instruction in that. Next, they are to be self-controlled. There's that phrase again. Young women, be balanced, be thoughtful. In all of your demeanor and all of your affairs, be balanced and thoughtful. Be under control of God and His Word. Be pure, chaste, holy, discreet. Don't go about flirting with people that are not your husband. Don't go about saying things that are inappropriate, coarse jesting and rude remarks about things that you should not be speaking of. Don't act that way, don't behave that way. Rather be chaste, be pure, be holy, be discreet about things that are sensitive. The King James has in this passage, keepers at home. The ESV has working at home. I do not believe that Paul intended to absolutely categorically forbid women from working outside the home. Sometimes it's just a necessity. A lot of single parent families in our culture, in our society, a lot of families that are struggling to make ends meet, there are times when women just have to do this. However, when there is an option for us, I'll just tell you what I do in premarital counseling. Some of you have been through premarital counseling with me. When there is an option, I encourage strongly for young women to be home with their children. And I'll tell you why, because I am advocating for children. There is not a child on this planet that does not want his or her mother raising him or her. Other people can do it, but nobody's gonna do it the way mother does it. Keepers at home. The idea here is that home is a priority. 
that home is an emphasis, that home is something that this young woman is all about. I realize this flies in the face of feminism today. I realize this is not socially acceptable or culturally uh, admirable. But I'm telling you, when you look at the Bible and what the Bible says about the way young women ought to conduct themselves, the Bible says that her priority, her priority is her husband and her children if she has them. And everything else is a distant second. It's her first obligation. As she goes about caring about the affairs of home, she is to be good and kind. She is not to be loveless. In other words, you can have a home that's very rigid with a lot of routine, with a lot of structure, and maybe that's the way you like for your home to be. That's not a bad thing at all. That's healthy. That's, that's sound. But be kind. Be good in the carrying out of those affairs. Be submissive to your own husband. The Bible teaches this in a number of places over and over. God's plan for the home is the husband is the head of the home. And that means, husbands, that we have a tremendous responsibility for God because we're going to give an account for our families. We're going to answer to God on the day of judgment for how we've tried to lead or not lead our families to the glory of God. And wives, we're going to give an account for whether or not we were submissive to our husbands in the sense that we showed him respect and that we didn't try to always dominate over him and we didn't always try to be the one that wears the pants in the family, so to speak, submissive to their husbands. This is, brothers and sisters and friends, sound, healthy teaching from God. Beginning in verse 6, Paul turns to the younger men. Some people divide this into two sections. Verse 6, maybe specific instructions to younger men. And then verses 7 and 8 to Titus, maybe, specifically. But since Titus was a younger man, we're just going to lump all three verses into instructions to younger men. What are they supposed to do? The one thing he says in verse 6 to younger men is that they are to be, stop me if you've heard this one, self-controlled. The older men. The younger women, the younger men, they're to be self-controlled. Young men need to learn self-control. Self-control when it comes to their speech. Self-control when it comes to things like lust. Self-control when it comes to things like how they conduct themselves with others and their relationships. Young men need to learn the lesson of self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a way in which we know God. Galatians 5, 23, 2 Peter 1, verse 6. Be balanced, be thoughtful in all of your ways, young men. And not only that, he says, show yourself to be a model of good works. Show yourself to be a model of good works. You know... When a young man is striving to do good things, those of us who are older sometimes will look at what the young man is doing and we'll say, wow, I wouldn't do it that way. That's, that's not going to end well. That's not good. That's, I see where this is heading. And we kind of think about, you know, what, what might go wrong with what they're doing. The Bible says, young men, you show in all your ways because you're going to receive a fair amount of criticism just because you're young. It's just the way things are. Older folks, we shouldn't do that. We should be very hesitant about that. But when you receive criticism, how do you handle that? Show yourself to be a model of good works, an example in life. Show yourself to the brethren to be the kind of man that God wants you to be. And live in such a way that when people see your life, they see that you're trying as best you can to serve Jesus Christ. 
in your teaching, Paul says, when you're speaking to others, make sure that you show integrity. Make sure that you're not speaking in a corrupt way with bad motives. You're not trying to undermine anybody. You're not trying to manipulate anybody. You're not trying to say anything that, that causes people to you know, have their feathers ruffled. You are speaking without corruption. You're speaking without bad motives. Show dignity. Again, the Bible commands us, brethren, to be serious about things that are grave in nature, serious in nature. The Bible commands that. There are some things that are holy and that are sacred and that we should be very careful if we're going to speak flippantly or if we're going to speak absentmindedly about those things. There are things that matter and that are of eternal import and we ought to treat them that way. Young men need to speak that way when they teach. Sound speech, speech that is healthy, speech that is true, speech that cannot be condemned, Paul writes. Make sure when you're teaching that you're teaching this way. It's not about you as a person, it's about your attitude. You know, I've discovered over the years, I've discovered that people typically have the attitude that I do. When I'm done teaching a lesson, people typically have the attitude that I do about a matter, about a, about a subject. Not just the words, not just the content, but the attitude behind it. And if I'm very flippant, if I'm very irreverent, if I'm saying things that I shouldn't be saying and I treat God's word that way and I treat a subject from God's word that way, there are gonna be people in the audience that adopt that attitude. Even if they're right doctrinally, they're wrong in their attitude in their heart. Young men teach in a way that is full of integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That's what's being said here. And then verses nine and 10, slaves or servants. There was a culture in the Roman Empire on the island of Crete 2,000 years ago where slavery was a normal thing. And there were people, if you can just imagine this, you would come to church and you would worship with other people and you might be a wealthy landowner, but you might be sitting on the pew or bench or whatever they had. And right down the pew from you is somebody's slave. And they can't go out to eat with you after church for lunch because they're a slave and they've got to go right back to their master. And to add complications to even that, sometimes their master was a Christian as well. And so when you read about slaves in the New Testament, that's kind of an interesting dynamic, don't you think? What would God say to slaves? What would he tell them to do? You want to talk about injustice. You want to talk about being owned by another human being. That's unjust. God says, slaves, servants, bondservants, you be the absolute best bondservant that you possibly can. That's what he says. The gospel ought to change you. And you, you let me worry about everything else, God says. You be the absolute best servant that you possibly can. This has direct application, by the way, to the way that we work with our employers. They had in the first century, if you can just imagine the system of slavery, unmotivated workforces, right? If you've got a slave, they're not exactly the most motivated person in the world to work hard and to do a good job. That's just not normal. Christian slaves are to conduct themselves in the following way. They are to be submissive in everything. They are to be 
the Bible says, well-pleasing to their masters. Not just pleasing, but well-pleasing. I want you to work in such a way that you are your master, that the one who you, you work for, I want you to work in such a way that they are well-pleased, that they don't have anything to complain about, anything to criticize about the work that you're doing. Don't be argumentative. If you're asked to do something, if you're given a responsibility, don't argue, don't talk back, but rather do what you've been told to do. Do what you've been assigned. Don't pilfer. You know, somebody might say as a slave, I'm doing all this work and I'm not being paid for it. I don't think a fork or a knife here or there is going to be missed. I'm going to take. God says, don't do that. Why not? Because you're a Christian. Because you belong to Jesus Christ and everything about you is different. Just like these older men and older women, younger women, younger men, everybody, everything's different because we serve Jesus. Don't act that way. Show all good faith. Be trustworthy. Be like Joseph. When he was a slave down in Egypt in Potiphar's house, Joseph was so trustworthy that Potiphar said, I'm going to put him over all my house, over all my affairs. I know I can trust that man. And isn't it interesting? Joseph belonged to God. God changes the way we work and the way we treat our employers, the people that we work for. And in doing all of this, Paul says, you are adorning the doctrine, the teaching of God, our Savior. What if by the way that you conducted yourself in the workplace, what if by the way that you conducted yourself in your home, what if that example that you're setting for others What if that is something that causes someone else to say, you know, I want to know what it is that's different about you. I want to know what it is that that has changed in you. You're adorning the doctrine of God our Savior by living this way, God says. And so when we become Christians, sound doctrine says this. It's not just about the facts and the commands and the promises of what Jesus has done for us at the cross and how that relates to our lives. Sound teaching, healthy teaching is about the very practical ways that we treat our husbands and wives. It's about the way that we interact with each other. It's about the way that we work for the people that employ us. Is there a difference in you because of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ? Every group in the church needs healthy teaching We would be wise as a congregation here at Katy to make sure that every group is receiving just that from God's Word. Maybe you're here and you're not a New Testament Christian. The way that you put on Christ is by repenting of your sin, being baptized for the remission of your sins. If we can help you to do that tonight, if we can help you by praying with you, won't you make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.